Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome to episode two of the Complete Performance Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Josh Williamson. Today, we're going to look at questions that you have asked me on Instagram. There are a whole range of different questions from supplementation to health conditions to different types of myths that people hear and throw around. And so in no particular order, I'm going to work through some of them and hopefully answer your questions. So the first one, I think was just asked in pure spite. <laughs> if you follow me for any amount of time, every single week, someone will ask a question on creatine. And it got to the stage where I was telling people, do not ask a question on creatine. Here's my ultimate guide. Go and look at it. And if you still have questions, then right, we've got issues. But it seems to me that there is still a lot of misconceptions regarding creatine supplementation, what exactly it is, who's it for, and would you actually benefit from it? Let's jump straight in and let's give you an analogy first of what exactly creatine is. If you remember the old Fast and Furious films, now I don't know what we're on, it must be Fast and Furious 15 at this stage because remember, nothing comes before family. <laughs> but back at the very start when it actually was about cars and racing, do you remember when you got halfway through the race or towards the end, they would flip that wee switch and hit the red button that you're not supposed to hit? And I would activate that NOS, that turbo, and that gave them a boost. That's the way I want you to see creatine. Okay, so anything that we do within any high-intensity sport. So CrossFit will be the obvious. Olympic weightlifting will be another one. But even any high-intermittent sport. Basketball, football, hockey, American football. Any of those team-based sports, rugby. They're all pretty much the exact same thing when it comes to the physiological demands. There are a lot of jogging, some walking, some high intensity efforts, some explosive activities like jumping or sprinting. And those types of things require creatine. So they require that NOS that you have to boost on when you're in the car. If you have a bigger tank of NOS, if you have more fuel, then you're gonna be able to sustain that effort for slightly longer which should then give you an edge over your competitors. Now, I will say that this isn't just for athletes. It's also for the everyday person who is maybe just going to the gym and they're weight training three or four times a week just to look better. Okay, so creating doesn't have to be just for the athlete. It can also be for the everyday person, but it can also be a health supplement as well. A lot of the research coming out now is around neurological disorders and neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. It seems that creatine supplementation within that setting helps reduce the degradation of the mind and so can, I guess, keep the ability of those individuals for slightly longer, which is obviously a good thing. So it isn't just a performance supplement. I would almost classify it now as a foundational supplement. So how exactly should you take it? Well, in terms of time and in terms of dose, in terms of all of this, the number one most important thing is actually remembering to take it. And this is something that I have an issue with as well. Sometimes I go through, yep, whole week, remembering protein, remembering my creatine, remembering my multivitamin. And other days, just forget about it. And that's just human nature. Like we are terrible at remembering to do things, at taking supplements. Even if you look at the statistics on antibiotics, terrible in terms of consumption so the first thing is just remember to take it because it will be like the equivalent of 
you see a female taking a contraceptive pill and they're like oh yeah take it about 70 percent of the time it's probably not going to work the way it should same sort of thing with creatine just remember to take it first and foremost but let's say we've got that down and we're actually taking it every day what's the best way to take it for me if we look at the research and how it's been taken creatine is one of those supplements that has quite a high non-responder rate in that a lot of us will take it and it may not be absorbed into the body the way it should be now even now if you look at the back of a tub of creatine it will probably say something like take alongside fruit juice or orange juice or something like that and that's because of the, a lot of the early research they were using compared to water or fruit juice and what we find is that when we consume creatine with some form of carbohydrate it tends to work so much more better so that's the first thing is try and have it either with a meal or with some form of carbohydrate when you're consuming it don't add it into your oats try not to add in the food because it doesn't tend to give the best the best flavor unless you like chewing sand in your oats it's probably not going to be too good for you so try and consume some sort of liquid for me personally when i'm working with athletes I'll get them to take it either during the workout or slightly after the workout. If not, at any other point of the day where they are going to remember it and they're going to have some form of carbohydrate. That sounds a little bit complicated. So what I would say is try and take it the same time every day that you're going to have some form of carbohydrate. When might that be? Typically breakfast. Easy to remember, easy to consume. So that's the creatine side of things. But let's jump on to another supplement just while we're here. I got asked a question about betalanine. And betalanine, I hate to say that it's a new supplement, but it's a supplement that a lot of people are only coming around to now. And shock, it comes from the CrossFit community. Um, now I've got a lot of time for, for CrossFitters, a lot of my athletes are CrossFitters, but just seems to be within that space that any new thing that comes along, anything that they think will get some form of performance and benefit, they just jump on it. And maybe a year or two ago, when Matt Fraser decided to retire, he went on to the Joe Rogan show and said, one of the best things that I've ever done was took bad alanine. I just carried a, a bag of it around everywhere and took it before a workout. Felt as if I had a third lung. There is no magic pill that's going to give you that. Okay, a supplement isn't going to do that. Workouts are still going to suck. You know, if you do any sort of AMRAP, if you do any sort of four-time workout, it's all going to feel terrible. It's the same thing when it comes to running. If you're doing a one mile time trial or a five mile time trial, same thing on the bike. Anything that is maximum effort is gonna feel terrible. Okay, so you're not gonna feel as if you have another lung. But what exactly does betalanine do? Same sort of sports as creatine, CrossFit or powerlifting or um, Olympic lifting, anything like that that's very single event or anything that is high intensity intermittent again a lot of your team sports when we do a lot of that you're all going to know the feeling of lactic acid now we're not going to jump into a biochemistry discussion on lactic acid because lactic acid is demonized when it actually is pretty a good thing but for the purpose of this conversation let's just talk about lactic acid being a bad thing so you all know that feeling that burning sensation when you're doing something really intense and you're like my legs are going to fall off here i just need to stop Betalanine allows you to push slightly further into that intensity zone. And if you can do that again through uh, a game, if you can do it through a workout, if you can do it in a competition, 
then you should have an edge on your competitors. Taking better handling is a little bit different from creating. Dosages are slightly different. For creating, it's about a teaspoon. For better handling, most people will probably start around three grams and then increase it to six. 6.4 technically if you want to jump into it, but start at three, move to six. And the reason why people do that is because if you jump in at six, your whole body is going to feel like it's covered in ants. You're going to get that side effect that if you've ever had a pre-workout, that itchiness, that tingling sensation, that's bed aniline working. Okay, so when it comes to bed aniline, there's no real specific time that you should take it. If you had had that feeling before, it's likely that you've taken it in a pre-workout supplement. So you've probably taken it 30, 40, 50 minutes before you train. But bed aniline takes time to build up in your system. So does creatine to be fair, but you're going to need roughly 21 to 28 days for beta aniline to reach saturation. And then you can drop it down to a lower dose to maintain those stores. So gradually increase the dose. Maybe start at three for the first week. If you get symptoms or they, that tingliness, just stay there and then gradually increase it to six. Now, please, please do not be going out and getting like one of those drug dealer scales where it's like, 1.1, 1.2, we don't need it to be that specific. But if you start with three, maybe jump up to four or five and then jump up to six. At the end of the day, it's only a tingling sensation. It's not gonna do any harm. And it usually does pass within 20 minutes or so. So hopefully that gives you a bit of insight into creatine and betaline. The next question is sort of change a little bit on the topic. The topic was on Crohn's and fueling for endurance performance. So I think first what we need to do is actually define those two different things. Crohn's is a classification of an inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, which some people may be aware of, some people won't be aware of. Inflammatory bowel disease is sort of an umbrella term for two different things. One is Crohn's and one is colitis. They do have very, very similar symptoms. You're going to get you know, abdominal pain. You may or may not have persistent diarrhea. You may have weight loss, joint pain, fatigue, mouth sores, some sort of deficiencies because of the nature of the condition. And then in some of them, you're going to have bleeding and you're going to have some form of urgency. So a lot of those are common between the two, but some of them are less common than others. So for example, with anemia or iron deficiency, it's more common in Crohn's and it is colitis. But with this here, with Crohn's specifically, it's inflammation of any part of the digestive tract. You know, it's most commonly the, the last part of the, the small bowel. Now, one of the things that I really want to get across here, that if you don't know anyone with IBD, I just want to give you an insight to how sort of debilitating it is. There's been a number of research papers that, that's went around and have been surveys and have asked people, with IBD, you know, how debilitating is it for your life? 70 to 80% of people with IBD have said that they will, they would rather take off 10 years of their life if the rest of their life was normal. Okay, so that gives you a little indication. Imagine 70 to 80% of people who have this condition saying, I would rather live 10 years less just so I can have some form of normal life. So, that gives you an idea of how debilitating it is. Now, how does it actually impact your day-to-day -day life? Well, because every sort of IBD patient is different, there needs to be a personalized approach. 
But that also means that there is sort of a personalized response to what happens. For example, some people will be so riddled with anxiety that if they go to a restaurant, if they go to a cafe, they need to know, is there a toilet very, very close by? Because if they eat something, literally it could be five minutes, it could be 10 minutes, minutes later, they're going to be on the toilet. Other people, it will give them severe bloating, severe cramps. Literally, people will have something and they're going to feel as if that I'm maybe like six months pregnant here because the bloating is so severe. When it comes to the actual treatment of any of these conditions, we're looking at improving the symptoms and we're looking at controlling inflammation. Now, there's a number of different ways we can do that. We've got medication, we've got surgery, and then we have diet and nutrition. When it comes to diet and nutrition side of things, we have to get the actual symptoms under control first. When you take a dietary approach to this, what you typically find is what are the triggers here within this condition? Because it is an inflammatory condition. So to give you sort of the, the short version is you're putting something into your body that your body doesn't like, and it thinks that it's an enemy. And so it tries to attack it. So it could be, I don't want to demonize gluten here because people will jump on flip gluten's bad. It could be literally anything. It could be gluten. It could be nightshades. It could be FODMAP foods. It could be anything. But if we take a nutrition approach to this, what typically will happen is you'll do some form of elimination diet, which is pretty much, I'm cutting out 90% of the foods that I eat I'm going to eat a very bland, very restrictive diet to see, can I understand what is triggering these symptoms? Now, at the start of an elimination diet, you will pretty much pull out everything and it'll be a very, very restrictive diet. The carnivore diet, for example, technically an elimination diet. Now, I do not recommend it, so please do not go and do that. But that gives you an idea. It's just like, oh, we're just going to eat meat. And then what we do is we have like a challenge phase where we introduce single foods so let's say we're just having an all meat diet we do that for maybe two to three weeks that's our elimination phase when we go into the challenge phase we start introducing foods that could potentially be triggers so we'll add in some rice and we'll add that in for, in for maybe three days is that okay is it not okay if it's okay great we can put a tick there we know that rice is okay if it's not then we drop the rice out we give it a couple of days for our body to settle and then we introduce a new food. And we do this over and over and over again for this entire challenge phase until we have something that resembles a normal diet. But at the end of it, we also have a list of foods that we know. If I eat these foods either once or over the course of a three-day period, I'm going to get symptoms. And remember, those symptoms could be severe abdominal pain. They could be persistent and uncontrollable diarrhea. It could be joint pain, it could be severe fatigue, it could be deficiencies, it could be bleeding. So these aren't just trivial symptoms here. We're talking about things that are going to impact and really challenge your day-to-day -day life. So that's the first thing that people need to do. Now, once you have that under control, then you can move into actually fueling for performance. The actual fueling for performance doesn't change from anyone else who doesn't have IBD. And it's essentially we need to match their energy demands with their with their food demands. So if they're training twice per week, if they're working a very active job, they're going to have a certain energy requirement. 
if they're an endurance athlete who's training maybe five days per week, maybe has a double session in there somewhere, again, they're going to need even more energy because they're expending more. If you drive five miles down the road, you're probably not going to need to put fuel in your car. But if you drive 600 miles, you're going to need to refuel a couple of times. The more work you do, the more you need to fuel. The only thing that I would really say here is that some of the things that you do as an athlete wouldn't necessarily constitute sort of a healthy diet as such. Now, it should be a healthy diet, but if you're a very say, mid to high level endurance athlete, you're doing a lot of training per week, maybe you're doing 15 plus hours of training per week, you're gonna need a lot of carbohydrates and you're not gonna be able to get them through maybe your typical day-to-day sources that you've, you've identified through your elimination diet. You might only have two to five carbohydrate sources that actually work with your body. And say rice and potatoes are one. Rice and potatoes are both quite filling when it comes to the actual satiety value of them. So you're not going to be able to get a lot of carbohydrate in that you acquire through potatoes. And this is why athletes, when they're doing that volume of training, need to go down the route of some sort of simple sugars, whether it's a carbohydrate drink, whether it's a carbohydrate powder, whether it's things like Haribo or dates or different sources like that. And that's going to introduce possibly new trigger foods. So again, it's a bit of a trial and error. Can we introduce these foods that are going to give us the energy that we need while also not making the IBD worse? And that's going to be a real challenge. Something I've worked with maybe two clients over my time with some form of IBD that was obviously done in conjunction with their medical practitioner because they'll use some form of medication but obviously the diet is going to be a big part of it there as well. So hopefully that gives you a bit of context. I guess to summarize, you're going to need to find what are your triggers. Certainly what are your triggers when it comes to nutrition? You're going to have other ones, maybe like smoking or alcohol, stress, anything like that, any infections, any medication. What are your triggers? And once you have them under control, then we need to increase the foods that you can eat that are going to fuel your actual performance. So hopefully that makes sense. So the next question is a typical myth that you often hear. And there's maybe two myths here that we can delve into. The one is that you shouldn't eat after a certain time. Now, I would have hoped that this myth would have died years ago, but it seems that people are still believing it. Let me just give you a very quick explanation here of how things work. When it comes to the body, when you're asleep, is your body still alive? Hopefully most of you are going to say yes. But when you go to sleep, you're still breathing. Most people are going to dream. We know that your brain's functioning. Your heart's still beating. And despite your muscles not actually moving, there's still going to be some energy there required just to keep them. And so that's known as your basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of calories it takes just to keep your body alive. Even at rest, our body still requires energy to survive. And that's actually the most or the biggest part of your metabolism. Even understanding that concept should make you realize that if I eat at nine o'clock at night, or if I eat right before bed, that's not going to impact whether I gain or lose body fat. Because if I eat right before bed, if I have a supper, my body still needs to get through the next six, seven, eight, nine hours of sleep because it's still alive and that requires energy. 
So it's a myth that just needs to go away at this stage. The other myth was about protein being bad for your kidneys. This is one that I heard in, well, I heard it a lot of times, but it was one I was specifically taught during one of my postgraduate courses. And I just thought, how can someone at a university level education still believe this? Even when presented with evidence, here's all the research papers to say that this is okay and you still think you're right. The idea of this here came through a number of different studies, whether it was animal studies or whether it was some observational research about high-protein intakes. And it also comes through misrepresentation of the actual physiology. So, for example, one of the very common blood tests that you'll often get done, if you just even get like a full blood profile with your, your doctor, your GP, what the tend will do is, for kidney health, for renal health, there will be creatinine in there. And creatinine is a very poor biomarker because creatinine increases if you take creatine supplementation. It increases if you do any sort of exercise, especially weight training. And then it'll increase with any high-protein diet. Three things that will not change your renal health. We have so much research now to say that protein intake, even at moderate to high levels, is totally fine. Now, there may be some concern that if you have any underlying kidney issues, then maybe high protein intake isn't the best, but that evidence is far from solid. There's still conflicting evidence, and there's some evidence that suggests that if you do have any sort of kidney issue, that an increase in protein intake, maybe not necessarily a high intake, but an increase in protein intake might actually be beneficial. It's one of those ones that for pretty much anyone who's healthy, moving up to one gram per pound of body weight, or 2 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight, you're probably going to be okay. Anyone else who has any sort of underlying issues or any current issues, you're probably going to want to reduce it slightly just to be on the safe side. But there's no real solid evidence to say that it's harmful. Okay, So hopefully that gives people a little bit of sense in amongst the madness. The next thing I want to jump on to is a question around hydration. You know, and how do we stay hydrated? How do we keep hydrated? With hydration... The first thing you have to understand that it's not just about fluid intake and i think that's something that we throw around really really loosely that oh get some water in you you may be dehydrated and so we have to understand what's going on in the body when we take water it goes into our bloodstream and our bloodstream is obviously the motorway that our body uses to get things from one place to another and if you think about on a motorway you've got all different types of cars different colors of cars you've got different vehicles you've got buses You've got lorries, cars, motorcycles. That's exactly like your body. Within your blood, within that motorway, you've got different types of cells and you've got different types of nutrients that are trying to get from one place to the other. Now, because your blood is a large proportion of water, whenever you take more water on board, it's going to dilute that slightly. Sodium is one of those things that we can almost trick our body into thinking there's more or less based on its concentration. So that tells us already that hydration is important through fluid, but also so are the chemicals that you'll know as electrolytes. They're also important for hydration because they balance where the water goes, essentially. Let's say that we take, someone said the other day, is six liters of water recommended? I don't know where that recommendation came from, Let's say that we took six liters of water and we just drank it right now. 
what's going to happen is it's going to dilute that concentration of say those electrolytes slightly and our body's then going to try and flush a lot of that water out that's what will gradually happen okay which isn't a good thing because we have a thing called hypo and hypernatremia which is basically when you have too much or too little sodium or what your body thinks is too much or too little sodium and you again as I say you can trick that by having too much water so just throwing in water into your system can actually hinder performance so when it comes to what actually should we be doing well firstly on the waterfront 35 milliliters of water per kilo of body weight is a good recommendation to start so whatever your body weight is in kilos multiplied by 35 that will give you roughly a ballpark of how much fluid you can consume per day and notice i said fluid and not water because we do recognize now that water comes from a number of different sources whether it's a bottle of water whether it's a coke zero whether it's your tea or your coffee or whether it's your food itself so that gives you a recommendation now if you work in the heat, if you work in a, a humid environment, if you do a lot of manual labor, if you do a lot of sport, that's going to increase slightly. And so you're going to have to replace that in some way. Now, how do we know how much to replace? I generally go off two methods. The first method is a bit more complicated. It might be a little bit more accurate, but it's a little more complicated. And I have done this with a number of high level teams in a changing room facility. And then individual athletes, I don't tend to do this too much because it gets it a little bit complicated depending on what their life is like and you'll see why. So let's say it's with a team. When they come to train, they're likely going to go into the change rooms. Maybe they've came from work, they have to get changed. When they take their kit off, they get down to their underwear, they jump on the scales, they get their weight. Now the weight is not a reflection of anything other than what's going to happen during exercise. So they get a weight let's just say it's 100 kilos they then put their kit on they go out in the train they come back in all sweaty what do they do well they need to take their kit off they need to get down to their underwear again but the next important point is they actually need to wipe down all the sweat off their body because the sweat's now outside their body we don't want that contributing to the weight once they've done that they wipe all the sweat off they jump on the scales again for every kilo of weight that they have lost we want to aim for at least one liter of water now at least ideally it'd be up to one 1.5 but at least one liter so if they have lost two kilos you want to replace it with two liters of water if you've lost three or four kilos you want to replace it with three or four liters of water and that's the way that we want to do it the second part of hydration then is obviously the electrolytes electrolytes come in many different forms at an absolute basic level you're going to have sodium and potassium in there you might also have um, chloride and you might have calcium magnesium a couple of other ones but an absolute minimum you're going to have potassium and sodium because those are going to be the two big ones that are lost during exercise you might also have some electrolyte powders or supplements that have caffeine in it you might also have some that have some form of carbohydrate in it as well but at an absolute basic level, it'll just be your electrolytes, your standard electrolytes. Now, should you use them? It really depends on what type of a sweater you are. Okay, because what we understand now is that not everyone sweats the same. Some people will be really heavy sweaters. Some people will be really light sweaters. But we also have people who are heavy salt sweaters or light salt sweaters. So let's say you're an individual who you maybe don't sweat a lot. You're a light sweater. 
but the sweat that you do give off is very high in salt. Now, how do you know this? You'll know it instinctively. If you've sweated a lot and you lick your lips and it tastes salty, you're probably a salty sweater. If you've ever finished a big training session, you haven't changed, you've jumped straight in the car or you've stopped to grab a coffee, say you're a cyclist, you do 30 miles and you're sitting there 15 minutes and then you go to get back on the bike and you notice that you've all hit this white dust all over your face, all over your top. Um, same sort of thing if you're finishing like a football match, you get home and you realise that, well, my, why is my face so gritty? That's going to be the salt that's in your sweat because your sweat has evaporated but it's left the salt there. So hopefully that covers the hydration side of things. Well, just to come on to the second method of how you might look at hydration, it's the good old crude method. What colour is your pee? First thing in the morning, it's likely that most people is going to have a really dark yellow, hopefully not brown, hopefully not red. You'll know yourself, if you've had a heavy night out, you're going to get up in the morning, your pee is going to be very, very dark because you're probably going to be dehydrated, which is one of the reasons why people get hangovers. Dehydration is a contributing factor. Most of us wake up dehydrated. You want to increase your fluid intake, keep it consistent, keep it regular across the day, and you should notice that your pee colour goes to that light, straw, pale colour, and that will be absolutely perfect. And we can monitor it that way. So you've got a number of different methods there, a number of different recommendations. Best thing, trial and error yourself, and let's see how you get on. Next question is a bit of a change completely from all of this. And the question was about how do you get better at being confident on camera? I guess my experience with this is twofold in the sense that number one, I do a lot of lecturing. So I have to assess a lot of people who do public, public speaking, who give presentations, and I can give you that perspective and then I can give you my own perspective of what it's been like. I don't think speaking on camera is any different from public speaking. There might be a slight psychological element in there, but we'll come on to talk about that. Let's give you the lecturing experience first. So one of the things that I hated as a student was giving presentations. No matter if that was in, I remember being in high school and being told that to even just read an essay at the front of the class and you end up and your hands are shaking everywhere and your voice is going. And then you sort of move into a new batch of symptoms and my, my new batch was like just continually to get a dry mouth. And you see the same thing when students give presentations. I have a bit of a reputation of asking hard questions. Now, questions are only hard if you don't know the answer. And what I mean by that is some students will get up and within the first 30 seconds, you'll know, are they bluffing me or do they actually know their stuff? Some people will read off the screen. Some people will have maybe cards in front of them to just give, give them like prompts. But you very quickly pick up, do you actually know the area that you're trying to share with the people here? Now, when I say that I'm, I'm harsh on students is that if I pick up that you're giving a presentation, I can see that you're reading off. When it comes to the actual question time, because you know yourself, if you've ever given any sort of presentation in university, there's always questions at the end. It's always open to the student panel. No student ever asks questions. And so the staff member has to ask questions. But if I saw that you were reading off your slides, then I'm going to ask you a question that's specifically on that slide. And literally the faces just go blank because I know that you've just read off and you don't even know what you're talking about. You haven't prepared this. And that's the number one 
piece of advice first is if you're given any sort of presentation is make sure you're prepared know your slides inside out and then know a little bit more beyond that i remember it was a master's cohort it was a nutrition module specifically looking at how do we share information our role as, as nutritionists if we have to give a talk how do we practically and obviously with that one of the assessments was you have to give a presentation this one student got up now the student themselves absolutely fantastic student really really knew her stuff really really good at presenting a little bit over prepared if i'm honest you can prepare to the extent where it sounds rehearsed isn't great either it's polished but it's maybe too polished if you know what i mean there's none of the, there's none of the individual's personality in it but that's beside the point she got the one of her slides and she was sharing about fueling for exercise fueling for her sport and she threw in a comment at the very end now it was one of her last points on the slide and it was it was quite an advanced point for the group that she was sharing to and so when it came to the question times i was like well this girl clearly knows her stuff she's put in a slightly more advanced point i'm going to ask her about that point and then when she gave me an answer to that question she sort of dug herself a deeper hole because she brought in a new piece of information and i was like oh now you're delving into the biochemistry and i'm actually really interested in that so can you share me about this now is that going to happen in a real life situation in all of the public speaking i've done at private events when you go into corporate companies when you go into gyms or teams no one cares and no one will ask about the biochemistry but because you're in an academic environment and you specifically have brought up this point i thought well you know about this point i'm interested in this point let's delve a little bit deeper and at that point that's when it sort of fell flat and so she still got a really really good really good grade for that but it was a point of you've prepared it so well but you actually haven't read around the area and that's always important as well because you have to be able to draw from different elements you have to be able to draw from experience so being prepared and then second point is obviously knowing your craft which only comes with time and that's the third point that public speaking is a skill think of the sport that you do right now think of any sort of move in the gym think of anything you do in your life that's a skill you didn't get up one day and start doing it in the same way a child just doesn't get up and walk someday you know they go through that phase where they are holding on to the furniture to try and shimmy along all of our skills require practice and that was my own experience and that's why i'm sharing this with you because anyone remembers me from school i was never a good public speaker i my very first memories of giving talks in school was even not wanting to read out in class sitting at your desk like we're sitting in english and you're going through something like macbeth or what was the other ones you done like to kill a mockingbird or books like this and it was like okay well we're all gonna read like three lines each and keep going around the class and teacher probably just didn't want to read that day it's got the students to do it <laughs> you got this anxiety because you're like flip i have to speak out in front of class here and then it was like okay well everyone's gonna have to do an essay on something that they want and you're gonna stand up in front of the class and share it with the class and then i remember i always used to shake and go red and you could feel yourself going red and you're like oh and you just couldn't stop it and then as i got older got into university was doing a lot more as i said those symptoms sort of shifted 
I didn't really shake as much anymore. But I went through a real dry mouth stage where my mouth just went completely dry. I was like the Sahara in there. And it meant that you're like, you couldn't really get your words out and you were looking for water. And literally anyone who comes to, even anyone now who comes to one of my speaking events will always see that I have some form of drink with me. Now, I don't really get those symptoms anymore. I don't get dry mouth. But I, I think I've just been, it's just left me with like, right, what if, what if this happens, <laughs> you know? So I always have something there just in case, but I am a lot more comfortable there now. And I think that that's, I guess, where the confidence comes from, is that recognizing that if you are given some form of public speaking, that you've probably been asked to be there. So you're being respected in what you know. And that when it comes to sharing that, then it's just about, well, how do I break this down to a way that will relate to these people? And again, a lot of my lectures, a lot of my events will always be full of analogies because that's how people resonate with some of the stuff that's how you break it down that's how they have those light bulb moments when we then shift that to confidence on the camera i don't think the the points really change that much there's maybe a couple of practical things that we can maybe do but i do think there is a big bit of psychology at play because there's one thing getting up in front of a group of people who have either prepared to be there like students or you've been asked to be there because everyone sort of knows what they're in for but if you're sort of going around your high street and you're trying to speak on camera that's not the the natural or traditional environment that you would do that in and because social media is moving so fast and technology is moving so fast that people will still look and be like what's this guy doing so that creates a lot of anxiety in a lot of people so i do think there is a big psychological um, component to that about being confident on the camera one of the last questions that i got was should you track your calories so this is a interesting question because for years people used different type of systems to help them with their diet and with their nutrition whether that was like a points based system or a sins based system if you used weight watchers or slim world or whether it was a meal plan whether it was a boot camp, whether it was low carb and just cutting out rice and potatoes and bread. We've all used something, but over time we've moved more to a more flexible approach and using apps like MyFitnessPal or others out there that are quite similar. And let's be honest, those apps, although they've been around for a long time, they are still much in their infancy and we don't really know the long-term effects of them. So should you track your calories? For the most part, I think that everyone should probably do it at some stage. Now, there is a quite a steep learning curve to it, but I think everyone should do it at some stage. And the reason why is because the amount of people who will come to me and say, Josh, I can't lose weight. What's going on? And I'm like, okay, well, let, let's break it down. What did you eat today? What was your breakfast? It's like, well, Josh, I eat really healthy. Like for breakfast this morning, I had this yogurt. I had granola on it. I had some dark chocolate. I had some nuts and seeds because they're apparently really healthy. We're like, okay, there's maybe about a thousand calories there. And so you've ate into your daily allowance quite a lot here and it's only breakfast. So when it comes to lunch, when it comes to dinner, when it comes to any snacks, you're massively pushing that up. And just like your bank balance, if you go into your overdraft, your bank charges you. Your body doesn't specifically charge you. It just gives you a little bit extra on the love handles and the bingo wings. 
So it is important from an education perspective to understand what it is you're actually consuming every day. Now, it shouldn't be for life. And that's what will happen. Some people is some people will have tried every single diet in the world and then they'll find my fitness pal, they'll find tracking calories, it will work and they'll build a very strong emotional attachment to it to the point where now they struggle to come away from it. But you don't want to be on your phone in the restaurant trying to track your food. Because these different types of apps are fairly recent, we're only sort of starting to get some sort of research now. And more and more research is showing associations between these types of apps and disordered eating behaviours or attitudes. Now, this isn't full-blown eating disorders. This is just behaviours and attitudes that we're talking about. So, for example, being very food-focused. So you have one meal and then you're focused on when's my next meal coming or what type of food can I have? Being very obsessive about the numbers. It could be all or nothing thinking around food. So my allowance for today is 2000 calories, but if I have 2100, well, that's it. The day is ruined. I might as well have X, Y and Z. It could be food anxiety. So if you're tracking your food through some form of app and someone says, OK, do you want to go for dinner tonight? And you're like, but can I go for dinner? How do I know? what they've cooked that steak in have they used butter have they used oil what about these potatoes was there double cream in those how much butter was out of them you get these thoughts and so it's um it's very much like well i can't go out now i can only eat food that i've prepared myself because i can then track it and then you have purging behaviors as well off, off the back of some of that um all or nothing thinking so we do have some form of associations that tracking can lead to those in some individuals now we still need to know more we're not really sure what came first the chicken or the egg so does tracking food lead to those types of behaviors and attitudes or is it that people who have those attitudes and behaviors are just drawn to my fitness pal that's something that we still don't know yet so caution is needed we have to understand that it can work both ways but what I think is really important to understand is that it's not the only way. There are multiple ways that we can control our diet without tracking every single thing that goes in our mouth. Most of you will have heard of score-based before, which is your typical Weight Watchers, your typical Slimming World, those types of point-based systems. Then you have things like templates or meal plans, which again, there's nothing wrong with them. They can work. They just happen to be quite restrictive. If we do move into the tracking of our calories you don't have to track proteins carbs and fats just like if you're trying to budget sometimes you want a very um, high level overview you just want how much money's coming in how much money's going out and you sort of budget that way but if you're really trying to save during a cost of living crisis you might want to understand well how much am i spending on monthly subscriptions how much am i spending on food how much am i spending on rent on energy on whatever so then you can try and make some sort of adjustments there that's the same as macro tracking that would be okay i've got my calories i understand how much money's going in and out but what's it being spent on and that's proteins carbs and fats then you have things like habit-based um methods you've got intuitive eating you've got mindful eating so there's a number of different tools in our toolbox here as i say and the main thing is is that it really comes down to the individual what is most appropriate for the individual if you've maybe had a history of disordered eating, 
if you have any disordered behaviors when it comes to your food or your disordered attitudes then we have to use caution when it comes to my fitness pal the other thing is, is that none of these are for life you know you're likely going to have a number of these or hopefully over your your lifetime you'll have learned how to use a number of these so you can apply them at the right point of your life so for example if you're under a lot of stress if you are having arguments at home if your partner or friends aren't supportive if you're trying to maybe lose weight or control your body weight in some way if financially you're struggling and you're just generally feeling overwhelmed do you think at the end of the day saying i need to track everything that goes into my mouth today is that really going to be beneficial probably not what is more beneficial at that stage maybe giving ourselves a bit of compassion maybe giving ourselves a bit of slack and understanding that you know what josh your life is a bit crazy at the moment maybe that isn't the best thing at the moment but what is maybe good is focusing on the habits your daily habits you know can you get three to four regular meals across a day can each of those meals contain a source of protein can you aim for x amount of water per day can you do a little mindful eating when you're having those three to four meals you know those habit-based strategies tend to be quite successful in instances like that where maybe the rest of our life is crazy but as i said these are all very individual things we have to treat the individual where they're at what do they want what's best for them and then try and get them to a place where they can be quite autonomous with their food intake and they don't need to track every single gram or they don't need to be really restrictive with certain things so hopefully that gives you an idea of should we actually track that's a number of questions covered for this podcast i think this went on for almost an hour and so it may not have been a lot of questions but hopefully the questions that were asked got plenty of context and plenty of value but to give you an update on the podcast we have a number of guests lined up starting in october and we're going to be delving into a number of different topics so it's shaping up to be a really exciting journey i'm so happy that you're here listening and if you have any feedback at all please feel free to drop a message let me know but it'd be absolutely fantastic if you could drop a rating and help the podcast grow more but i hope you have a fantastic week wherever you are and look forward to having you back in the next one